Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. For many years, my guest today, Tom Katena, was the only doctor in the Nuba Mountain region of Sudan. This is an area on the border between Sudan and South Sudan, and in 2011, it was the site of intense fighting between government forces and local groups aligned with the South. Throughout this fighting, which lasted for years, Tom Katana ran the Mother of Mercy Hospital. He saw thousands upon thousands of patients every year under the most difficult of circumstances. His hospital was bombed, his house was targeted, but Tom Katana never left, and he's still working there to this day. I caught up with Tom in Yerevan, Armenia, where he was on hand to participate in events around the Aurora Prize for Awakening Humanity. Last year, Tom won this prize, which is conferred by the Aurora Humanitarian Initiative. This is a group established by Armenian and Armenian-American philanthropists in honor of survivors of the Armenian Genocide. The idea behind this prize is to honor individuals who are standing up for human rights, often without much recognition and in extremely difficult circumstances. The winner this year was a Rohingya human rights lawyer named Kya La Ong. I had the honor of participating in events around Yerevan last week and collecting some great interviews with fascinating people, and I look forward to sharing those with you in the coming weeks. For now, though, I think you will really appreciate this conversation with Tom Katana. Uh, to sort of maybe set the scene for you, we met in a quiet cigar bar at the lowest floor of a hotel in Yerevan, which turned out to be a perfect setting for a very powerful and I think inspiring conversation. So here is my conversation with Dr. Tom Katana from Yerevan, Armenia. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. I, I saw that you're on a postage stamp here. Is that right? <laughs> yes. That's right, yes. <laughs> I mean, that's just, right. I guess, another indication to me of the kind of celebrity status that the Aurora Prize recipients receive here in, in Armenia. How, yes. What's that been like for you? Uh, it's been unbelievable. You know, I was, when they had the, the ceremony last year's winner, uh, Maggie Berenkitsi also was mm-hmm. putting a stamp. Yeah. She's been on the show as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right, yeah very yeah, good. Yeah. So, you know, they told me about this and then we had the ceremony the other day to introduce it. And it was almost surreal because I was a huge stamp collector when I was a kid and I love collecting stamps. So if I knew then this would ever happen, it was just kind of, it was just really funny to me. Yeah. I wish, unfortunately, the word got out to my family members because I wanted to send them a, 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 a letter from here with that stamp on it just to get it, just get a big uh-huh. kick out of it. Unfortunately, the, the word's already out, but that was, that was really kind of fun. I really enjoyed that. 
Well, so I'm wondering, I mean, that's just like one indication of the sort of recognition you've received Mm -hmm. uh, for your work since you won the Aurora Prize in 2017. Mm -hmm. How has that changed your work on the ground in Sudan? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, um, I didn't know this last year at the time after uh, I was awarded the, the Aurora Laureate, but we actually would not be open today. The house would not be open today if it were not for the Aurora Prize. Because um, part of that money went towards buying buying all of our drugs and supplies, and uh, the other part of it really through publicity, uh, we were able to raise money to to pay for the staff salaries this year. The the donors that normally funded us dropped out about about a year ago, and just because the Aurora Prize were able to keep the doors open and keep going ahead, and we're we're now establishing ourselves and getting more uh, getting on better, uh, more firm footing. To continue on because it's just for the Aurora Prize able to keep going with the work there. And so it's a situation where like the, not just the prize money, but like the international recognition that came with it. Right. Helped, so, yeah. Helps yeah, sustain. Exactly. So, you know, with, with the publicity, people get to know about you and what you're doing and they contribute money and you can keep going ahead with the work. Um, so I'd love to sort of figure out how and why you ended up doing what you do, um, working in the, the Nuba region. Mm-hmm. Um, but before we get there, I'd just love to learn a little bit more about you and, and sort of what drove you. Apparently, you're a stamp collector growing up. Where did you right. grow up? I grew up in Amsterdam, New York. Where's that? Is, it's up uh, near Albany, about four hours north of New York City. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Just I, I grew up um, in Danbury. Oh, yeah, okay. not too far. In yeah. Connecticut. Yeah, yeah, yeah in Connecticut. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're not far from Kind of like all like like Schenectady, that yep. area. Okay, we're sure, right sure. Next okay. Yeah, yeah. We're twenty minutes from Schenectady. Okay. Okay. Small town. We were uh rug making and the you know, all the industries left in the fifties. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of a depressed yeah. We were a big area. hat town in Danbury. That's that, right. That, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> and brass mills that closed down and depressed yeah. the area. Yeah. So we're kind of the rest of the like the rest of the northeast, kind of a rust belt mm-hmm. uh kind of town and um Depressed economically, but a yeah, great place to grow up nonetheless. Um, so uh, growing up, I mean, were you involved in medicine? I mean, were, was, was your family doctors? Like where did that impulse come from? No, we have, I had a great uncle who was an Italian immigrant who went on to be a family practice doctor in my hometown. And I, I never wanted to go into medicine when I was in school. I always wanted to go into politics and do other things. And then even when I went to college, I studied engineering. I was a mechanical engineering major. Where did you go to school? Um, I went to Brown University in Rhode Island. And I, went, I gradu- graduated from Brown in 1986, and my degree was in mechanical engineering. Uh, the problem was I had something sort of gnawing at me the whole time. I I'd wanted to go into mission work. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm Roman Catholic from birth, and I developed an interest in doing mission work uh, when I was in college. And uh, there, there was a real mismatch between mechanical engineering and doing mission work. Mm-hmm. Um, Engineers without borders didn't exist back then. No, they didn't. And yeah. even even those guys do more kind of civil engineering type stuff. Mechanical engineering was more at the time they're going into the defense industry, mm-hmm. uh, like to be to do mission work. Didn't jive with the Roman Catholic values. No, yeah. no, there was no connection with it. <laughs> yeah. So I graduated. I was I was given a job, uh, a really good engineering job, and uh, I was just thinking, I think this doesn't really feel good to me, and it just kind of popped into my head one day that um, that I should go into medicine. I was coming back from my aunt's funeral. My aunt Fanny, who was another Italian immigrant, died. I was driving back from Albany with my brother Felix. And it just popped in my head that I should go to, go to medical school and become a doctor, and that would be a way to, to do what I want to do. And I mentioned my brother. He goes, oh, you're crazy. I thought you were an engineer. Anyway, I, we, I talked to my parents and some friends, and they were very supportive. And uh, I ended up going to medical school and 
uh, during that time, always had the idea uh, of going into going to the missions and doing this kind of work. Was uh, there like is was there at that point like an established path for doctors who wanted to do mission missionary work? There were like Catholic you know hospitals around the world where you know American doctors or Western doctors could go work. Yeah, there, there are, and uh, mm-hmm. I didn't I didn't know that at the time. Mm-hmm. I just had this kind of general idea. So you I figured it must exist, right? right. Yeah. And, uh, uh, right after finishing all my time and my time, I had a uh, U.S. Navy scholarship, so I had to get, pay back five years oh. of time with the, uh, to the U.S. Navy. Where, where did you serve in the Navy? I was in. Um, I spent a couple of years in San Diego, mm-hmm. and then uh, uh, spent a year in a place called Diego, Diego Garcia. Yeah, which is yes, the, uh, the Chagas Island. Islands. Yes. Exactly, it's part of the Chagos. Yes, uh, I've actually on the podcast. I've had like a member of the Chagos Islands Independence Movement. Really? Yeah, yeah. Who is trying to, you know, there's this, I don't know, I don't need to go too down the, the rabbit hole, but, you know, he, his group is suing the government of the United yes, Kingdom yes. and able to return because he lives on, he's like an exile in Mauritius right, right. now from right. Diego Garcia. Yeah. I but you were there. I was yeah. there. I spent okay. a year there. It was, it was mm-hmm. actually one of the best years of my life. The place is absolutely beautiful. So I, I, I sympathize. I think they're called Chagosians. Yeah, called. Chagosians. Chagosians. Yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah. I sympathize with those people because the place is absolutely mm-hmm. beautiful. Yeah. And I uh, spent the year in Diego Garcia, came back, spent a couple more years in Miramar uh, at a Marine Corps air station just north of San Diego. Mm-hmm. And did f- this, this paid for your med school? Right. So, I, okay. I, yeah, this was payback uh, for medical okay. school. And uh, it was a great deal. I mean, the military was, was great for me. And uh, spent a couple years up in Miramar. We traveled all over the place. Where's the- Miramar. Miramar is just north of San Diego. So, uh, uh, Top yeah, I know where like Chagos is. I don't know right. where north of So, you remember San Diego. the movie Top Gun? Yes. In the 80s. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Top Gun was, was filmed at Miramar. Oh, okay. So, that was the, we used to be an F 14 air station. When I was there, it was changed over to the Marine Corps. It was F 18s. So, were you I, there when Top Gun came out? No, no, I was there okay. later. Okay. So, I was, I was the flight surgeon. I was a doctor for a squadron, mm, and my okay. squadron flew the F 18. Okay. And then finished my time in the Navy. They went to, um, my postgraduate, my my residency in family practice, that was in Indiana, Terre Haute, Indiana, mm-hmm. where Larry Bird went to college. Yes, I was going to say, that's a la- the Larry Bird. Uh, it's Larry yeah. Birdville. Yeah. yeah. Time. And after finishing my residency in family practice, I came straight to Africa. I, getting, you know, I was trying to figure out, like you're saying, are there organizations which uh, sponsor doctors do the mission work? Mm-hmm. So I started researching and came across the Catholic Medical Mission Board. Uh, which is based in New York. They've been around since 1929, I think, and uh, contacted them. They said, great, you know, we need a lot of family practice doctors and sent me this huge list of hospitals that are looking for a family practice doctor. And I, I picked a place in Kenya and spent two and a half years there. Where where in Kenya were you? I was in a place called Mutomo, which is, is Eastern Province. Okay. Uh, it's about a five-hour drive from Nairobi, um, south of Katui, which is another pretty small town. Like what, Like what, around what year is this? This was in, I entered, I arrived in Kenya January 17th, 2000. Okay. So, and I've been- You remember the day. I remember the day. What was that? Was Had you been to Africa before? I've been there once before. In 92, 1992, I spent two months as a rotation. I was mm-hmm. still a medical student. Yeah. And I spent two months at a hospital near Nairobi with the missionary doctor. And then uh, that kind of whetted my appetite for that kind of work. Well, what, can I ask, like, why do you remember the specific day that you, you entered Kenya? It was, yeah, it was kind of, for me, it was a kind of a big day, a big day in my life. Cause this was kind of the start of something new and kind of the start of like, finally I've reached the point, uh, you know, I, I kind of finished school, finished all my training, finished all my commitments to the U S Navy. Now it's time to start get on with the rest of my life. So it was a big day. It was like the first day of my, my career, first day of my life, of my adult life. Cause up to that point I've been training and, 
you know, obligation to the Navy and other things. Um, so it was, it was a big day. Right, they very well. And so what did you, so what kind of medicine did you start practicing at that hospital in Eastern Kenya? Right. So, you know, I, I trained in family practice. So, okay. uh, family practice doctors in the U S you do all the outpatient stuff. You can do some inpatient medicine, take care of, you know, hospitalized patients. Your surgery, uh, capabilities are limited. When I arrived in Kenya, I could do a C-section, cesarean section. That's about the only operation I'd done. And I'd done one of those during my training. Anyway, so I arrived in Kenya and started doing um, a lot of just basic internal medicine, some pediatrics, some, a lot of obstetrics care, so basic deliveries. Uh, I was doing cesarean sections uh, at the hospital, the first hospital I worked at. When I was there, I started learning other operations very slowly. There were some visiting surgeons would come. I would spend time with them and they would show me how to do a hernia, show me how to do a prostatectomy, show me how to do a, a surgery for breast cancer or amputation. So I started learning these other operations. Uh, and then I wanted I spent two and a half years at that rural hospital. Can uh, I, can I ask like, how does like doing an amputation or say, uh, like a hernia differ in a rural hospital in Eastern, uh, Kenya versus say, you know, in like, you know, mass general. Right. So I mean, the difference is I just, the, the setup of course is much different at a U.S. hospital. The place is just sparkling clean. There's incredible sterility. The, the room is cold. It's usually kept a bit cold. Uh, all the instruments are brand new and sparkly and clean. Uh, the way you prep a patient, just clean the, the skin and apply the, the the drapes is very kind of neat and standardized. Whereas in rural Kenya, the room is roasting hot. Uh, the sterility is not quite the same. You know, the, the doors don't open very well. There's stuff coming in. I remember one time we we're doing a, a cesarean section. It was at night. And uh, the door was the door didn't close well. And I think the rains had just started. So the, the room, it was at night and the light was on. The room was inundated with these, uh, these flying ants. Just, they just, they just came in the room and covered the room. So the abdomen is open. We're operating in the room. Uh. The ants are like falling into the room. It was crazy. So that was kind of a. Was she all right? Oh yeah, she did fine. Okay. People there are very strong. So okay. she did very well. Uh, but just, it was a huge difference. Uh, the personnel are skilled. The, the, the other, the nurses and anesthetists I worked with in, in Kenya were quite good. But the, 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 the sterility was not, not quite the same. Like, used to. I mean, what did like, I mean, obviously you went there sort of expecting that inequity and, you know, you were driven by like a social mission to try to fight that sort of injustice embedded in that inequity, but, and you're confronting it on, on like a daily basis. Yeah. But like, do you ever kind of step back and, and think about like the conditions that like led this hospital here to be, you know, like this versus say, you know, a hospital back in, in the States, like the more like kind of deeper structural issues, or are you just focused on one patient at a time? Yeah. I mean, I think my, my approach to all this stuff is, yeah, kind of get down on the ground with the, with the staff there and do the work day to day and work all the time to improve it. So just because of, um, just monetary differences, just the, the, the cash is not available in those places to bring it up to us level, but work to bring it up to some level, just keep, keep going forward improving the level of the services that you're able to offer and improve the quality of care, the, the quality of the instrumentation, the sterility, all those things, you know, and just, just keep going in that direction. Don't, don't look ahead. Don't get discouraged that you'll never reach the level of mass general. Just, just go ahead, keep improving things. Eventually you'll, you'll come up. It might not reach the level of a, a top hospital in the U S but you're, you're, you're improving the quality. Uh, and the, in the end you're improving the quality of the patients get. So how, how long were you at that hospital or were you in Kenya in, in general? Uh, I was in, I was at that hospital for two and a half years. 
Then I went up to a place called Turkana, way up in the north of Kenya, and spent just a few months there, and then came down uh, to Nairobi, uh, which is the capital city of Kenya. I was there for five years. Actually, the guy I worked with in, in Nairobi was the same doctor that got me interested in mission med- medicine back in 1992. Mm. He's an American priest named Bill Friday, and I worked with Bill for five years in Nairobi. And then when I was there, I um, kept hearing about this conflict in Sudan and how the conditions there were so so terrible and, and really the, the people had been in civil war for 20-some years. Mm-hmm. And I thought, God, I'd really like to go and, and work there. And, uh, I saw it as kind of a, a real challenge. Like I was in Nairobi. Nairobi's, mm-hmm. uh, you know, has, has some is a pretty modern city and it's got a lot of uh, amenities and I thought, man, I want to get something that's a little more challenging. You know, as I'm well, still a bit young. And wh- Why is that? I mean, you know, you had worked in challenging places in rural hospitals in eastern Kenya. Obviously, Nairobi is like a, a big city, so it's a little different. But, like, why, of all places, like, you know, Sudan at that time? Yeah. I mean, I figured, okay, I'm a doctor, and where, where could I best use my, my abilities, my limited ability? Where can I put that to, to the most use? So even in rural Kenya. You'd have other doctors there that are that are quite skilled and doing a fine job. They can Kenyan doctors. They can stay and do that job. Let me go somewhere where there's there is no other doctor at all, where the conditions are really terrible, and get started on a on a project from the ground up. So that's I had that in the back of my mind. I'd, I'd like to do that kind of work when I heard about this conflict in Sudan, and then I I threw a, a friend of mine, uh, an American. Uh, sister called uh, Sister Didi Byrne. She told me about a bishop in Sudan who's starting, a, who's building a hospital. And she said, oh, I think you'd like to go and work there. You know, I, I, I see you like this kind of challenge. So to make a long story short, I contacted the bishop's office and we started a relationship and they said, okay, the hospital's not ready yet, but we'll, you know, we kept in touch. And then when it finally opened, um, I went out to the Nuba Mountains of Sudan. So what, what year did you start in the Nuba Mountains? I arrived there March 10th, 2008. So another very, very big day. Okay. Yeah. So, so March 10th, 2008, let's maybe take a step back and put this in like the broader kind of political context of, mm-hmm. of, of the time of Sudan. So by 2008, you had the conflict in Western Sudan and in Darfur mm-hmm. is kind right. of winding down. Right. Um, the, it was still two years or three years before. Um, independence of, of South Sudan in, right. in, in 2011 <coughs> and the region you went to the Nuba region mm-hmm. sort of borders uh, right, like exactly. North South Sudan, you know, proper and uh, South Sudan. Right. What was like the political context in which you sort of entered at, at, at the time? Right. So the Nuba mountains, uh, historically they're, they're African people. The Nuba are African and they, during the, the long civil war with Sudan, they sided. I should say African as opposed to like Arab. Not right, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. African. Which is African. like a big kind of cultural or a- a- ethnic divide of the exactly, region. Exactly, right. Yeah. So they're African. They, 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 the mm-hmm. population north is mostly Arab. And has connections to the Arab world, whereas the Nuba have connections more with the African world. So the Nuba were sided with John Garang and the, and the mm-hmm. SPLA, South Sudan People's Liberation Army, during the long civil war with Sudan. Comprehensive, comprehensive peace agreement was signed in 2005. Mm-hmm. And the agreement uh, kind of left Nubo, uh, the, the mountains in, in, in limbo. Mm-hmm. The South uh, said, okay, we'll, we signed a peace agreement. <clears throat> we'll spend six years uh, kind of uh, working together with Sudan. We won't fight each other. We'll see how things go. And at the end of six years, we'll have a referendum. We'll vote to see if we want to separate or not from Sudan. The Nubo were left out of that process. Mm-hmm. The Nubo were supposed to have a separate process called a... Um, a popular consultation, which was a very vague mm-hmm. system where they would consult with the people and see what they want to do. And anyway, it wasn't a real referendum. Mm-hmm. Anyway, you fast forward, things come along, 2011, 
South Sudan has a referendum. They vote 99% to 1% mm-hmm. separate. They go on their merry way. In the mountains, they are, people are starting to get upset about this issue and now the South is gone. They're in the North. Uh, there are elections coming up for, for the governor of South Kordofan State. I have two candidates are, um, one guy is named Ahmed Haroun, who was... I remember uh, him. He's on ICC indictment. Exactly. Yeah, I know ICC that name. Indictment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That name's from way back. He's Yeah, he's, he right. was uh, when um, the International Criminal Court indicted Omar al-Bashir, the president of Sudan. They also included that guy. Wait, Ahmed Haroun. Ahmed Haroun, also, yeah. Uh, was he like uh, a Janjaweed leader? Or was he that? No, he was the intelligence He was guy. the intelligence guy. He's yeah, the guy that organized I remember. Oh, the, man. The I had not heard of that name in a right. long time. He was the guy that organized okay. the Janjaweed and was responsible for that that idea. Okay, so he's... ideology. Yeah. So, so, so he's running for governor uh, against uh, the guy named uh, Abdelaziz uh, Adam Al-Hilu, mm-hmm. who is the current leader of the Nuba people. So anyway, Abdelaziz runs against Ahmed Haroun. Of course, all the all the all the uh, people are behind Abdulaziz, and uh, before the election, uh, Bashir announces that our candidate uh, Ahmed Haroun will win this election either by the ballot or by the bullet. Mm-hmm. So you know this is not going to be a free and fair election. Yeah, and the election comes uh, comes off, Ahmed Haroun wins. Unfortunately, the Carter Center comes and verifies the election. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, the Nuba people are very upset, and things are not going well. And, the government says, okay, you know, this public consultation is very vague. And they want to come and say, okay, now you, you guys are part of Sudan. The, the, the Duba soldiers that were part of the SPLA North, or were part of the SPLA, have to disarm. Mm-hmm. They try to force disarmament. This is, in, this is on June 6, 2011. Yeah. This is, the Nuba yeah. soldiers rebel, mm-hmm. and the civil war starts in the mountains. This is just yeah. a Nuba conflict against the central government in Khartoum. So, so... Basically, just to, to summarize, basically the the status of the Nuba region um, was left ambiguous in order mm-hmm. to secure that 2005 comprehensive peace accord that led right. to South Sudan. Yet you have um, the people of this region are more politically aligned with the South, right. uh, but are technically part of the North. Right. Um, how did your work as as a doctor sort of change and differ from, say, 2008, 2009, before the right. Civil War mm-hmm. started, and then after, yeah, we, I mean, it changed. It changed overnight. Really, it changed overnight. We went from being we we're extremely busy uh, hospitals, seeing I mean, all kinds of stuff, and we we're we we're getting patients from all over Sudan. They were coming from Khartoum. Khartoum Wait, is like a two that's day really drive. far. Yeah, Khartoum it takes two uh, two days to reach there if you can. Why were sorry? Let me stop you there. I mean, that's that's amazing. There are hospitals in in Khartoum. There are, big there are no hospitals except yours in, right. in Nuba. Right. So Khartoum, El Obey, which is a big city, which has good hospitals. They were coming down to our hospital in the bush, mm-hmm. and you know, I think the reason was, I mean, I I think hopefully our care was was pretty good, but also of course the cost cost was much less. Mm-hmm. It was. Uh, we're charging peanuts for uh, doing major operations for for any kind of care we're offering. And the hospitals in the north are, were, were quite expensive. Even the government hospitals were mm-hmm. out of people's uh, price range. So we're getting people from all over Sudan. We're coming. We're very very busy. Now the war starts, and we're cut off. You know, we're, our, our enclave is is pretty much cut off from the rest of Sudan. Most of the population centers were on the side of the north. The big army garrisons for Sudan army were there. The uh, Nuba rebels, the SPLA, now they call themselves SPLA North, mm-hmm. were kind of carved out a pretty, pretty big territory where we lived. They kind of pushed the government soldiers back, kind of back to you know, uh, back to the major towns that ring Nuba Mountains, and that's where the board, that's where the front line has pretty much stayed till today. Uh, we went from this a lot of um, elective operations, a lot of cancer surgery, a lot of big operations, all kinds of stuff, 
see people from all over Sudan. A lot of Arabs were coming, Arabs were coming down for treatment. But from that to being pretty much a mass unit overnight. Hmm. So the war starts and immediately we're getting casualties, you know, truckloads of wounded coming. A lot of wounded soldiers. We got a lot of civilian casualties from aerial bombardments and people caught in the crossfire. So almost immediately the, the, our patient population changes over and we're, hmm. our, we're just full of wounded people, uh, both in the wards. We set up tents outside, just full of wounded all over the place. How, I mean, how did you sort of personally sort of deal with the, the onset of, of war? I mean, you said it happened almost overnight. It sounds like it, it just, it, it just went from zero to 60 very, very <coughs> yeah. fast. Things like, happened very fast. Yeah. How, how, like, how did you personally sort of deal with this? Yeah, it was, manage? Yeah. it was very tense because during this lead up, we had the idea something was going to go down, you know, and the negotiations go back and forth and people saying, look, something's, something really bad is going to happen. This fighting is going to start. And the um, uh, people that the group that was actually sponsoring me said, "Look, you need to be evacuated because the war started. War is going to start. You need to get out of there." Our, our expatriate staff, we had um, still expatriate staff. We had a couple of Americans. We had some Kenyans, some Ugandans, and uh, the the diocese uh, that was running the hospital said, "Look, we, we we don't want to force anybody to leave, but this situation is very dangerous. If anybody wants to go, we're sending one flight into Nuba." Uh, if you want to get out, you got to get in that flight and get out. This is the last flight we're going to send in to evacuate people. So we, we just talked amongst ourselves and uh, myself and the priests and the sisters all decided to stay. We said, you know, we're not going to go. This is really, if we go, we, we, what's going to happen to the hospital? And if people are wounded, there was nowhere else to go. There is no other hospital doing any surgical stuff in the, anywhere near us. Um so we said, in good conscience, we can't leave. So we all stayed. Myself, the, the Recambonian sisters there, the priests. We had a couple of Ugandan priests. They stayed with us. But you're the only doctor. You're right. I was the only doctor there. Is, are there any nur- any sort of trained nurses or any other trained medical professionals? We had uh, we had two Nuba guys that were clinical officers, which were kind of like physician assistants. Mm-hmm. So they stayed with us. Yeah. And then the, the trained nurses were Kenyan and Ugandan. They all left. Yeah. Our, the guy that does our, did our anesthesia. He left. Okay. <laughs> the person in charge of our lab left. So we, we were just left with just the Nuba on the job trained staff and two sisters, uh, Cambodian sisters that were nurses. One was from Mexico, one from Uganda. They stayed. But most all of our staff were on the job trained. So really it was tough, especially with, uh, you know, lab stuff with anesthesia. Uh, you have so to like learn, I had to be, you have anesthesia. to become an anesthesiologist. Right. So I had to do the anesthesia when they, when it came in. And I was, I'd never done it before. So I had to do the anesthesia, then go over and do the operation. And we had, um, one of the Nuba nurses on the job train guys was there. So I would kind of direct him. He'd been working in operating a bit. So I had a bit of knowledge about some of the anesthetic drugs. So I would just do the operation, instruct him how to uh, keep the patient asleep and hopefully alive. But it was a very, very stressful time. But I think those of us that stayed, uh, felt that we, we are missionaries here and this is the hour of need. If we, if we turn tail and leave, this really looks bad. And we really, we really wanted to stay. Can, can you walk me through, like, what's an average day during the height of the Civil War? Like, in terms of your, your routines? Because I have to imagine at some point it becomes routine. Yeah, it became very time. We get up early in the morning. Um, we have, uh, we had two priests there, Skip, at, uh, I get up around six, uh, go over to the church. We had a, a mass every morning. It's, uh, we started at 6.30 from 6.30 to 7. So I go with the sisters and maybe a couple of people. We'd have a morning mass. Come back, maybe have a little bit of uh, tea, go and start the morning rounds, and just start seeing the patients. And we were, 
We were up to at one point like five hundred patients. And like trying to get through all. Is of them. it so? It's mostly just like wounds from from war, but right. I have to imagine like malaria and, and malaria. Other, I mean, yeah. everything else was there. We had yeah. malaria. So all the other problems were there. Uh, the malaria, the pneumonias, the kids with diarrhea, the people with cancers—they were all there. Now on top of that, we had all the war wounded. Uh, probably we had fewer elective cases or fewer of those other cases, just because people were not were afraid to move. You know, afraid to travel. There was no movement of people on the ground. So start the rounds, and then, I mean, almost every single day, we'd hear the airplanes go overhead, and they were going to bomb somewhere. They would bomb, maybe, they eventually bombed us, but initially they bombed several nearby villages. Kauda was the bigger town, maybe half an hour away. And we just, they'd bomb, and then we'd be doing the rounds, and then they start coming with wounded. So we stop what we're doing, go to the emergency, go to the operating room, start operating patients, finish there, come out go back to the war rounds, go up to the clinic and see which patients were there. Mm-hmm. It was it was constant, just constant movement. I mean, I have to imagine like the resource scarcity, like you're not working with like a lot of equipment there. Right. I have to imagine you're not working with like a lot of medicines. You're not working with like a lot of basic things, probably like splints or right. like what? And I imagine that sort of forced you to innovate in, yeah. in a way, yeah. um, sort of work on, on the fly. Like what's an example of ways in which sort of the the lack of resources that you had like forced you to do something you wouldn't normally do in like a normal clinical setting. Right. So well, one thing was we had uh, we had so many uh, leg fractures from either bullet or shrapnel wounds. So these soldiers would come in, and the leg is just shattered, just big gaping wounds, uh, shattered bones, and you can't operate in those immediately. You've got to put them in traction. So as a pin, we had a few of these pins. We drive through the the tibia bone or through the femur. And then you have to attach what's called a stirrup. It looks like a stirrup from a, from a horse, you know, like a thing. We, we ran out of those things. Or we didn't actually we didn't have any. So we had to make some. We went out and we found some hard wire. We made it into a, a stirrup. We made a loop so we could attach a rope. We got a rope. And you're supposed to attach it through a machine to, you know, standard weights. We didn't have any of this stuff. So we just kind of got some old sacks, filled them with sand. And those were the weights that we used to distract the leg to keep it aligned until the bones healed or hopefully healed. Uh, so that was one area to keep innovating. It just in terms is that of, like how they used to do it, like back is, in the day. This is like, civil war. I mean, it's it's this is like. Uh, like did you like read going, any books about like medical treatments in the civil war to to kind of come up well, with this? I mean, I have to. Yeah, there's yeah. Uh, there are some pretty good uh, one good textbook. Scotty Morris King puts out these fantastic. Um, he's got a, a two volume series about basically medicine at rural district hospitals, and it applies a lot to rural medicine in Africa. And a lot of this stuff he's he's written about how to do some of these things, huh. and so I, I read those things you know cover to cover over the years. Yeah, and they're really they're really good. The kind of how to do things and and work out with these situations. So basically, you're using like Civil War era yeah. medical technique because that's all you you have at your right. at your disposal. Yeah, Buck's traction is just is Civil War era stuff. That's what it's called, Buck's, yeah, traction, Buck's traction. That traction. Yeah, yeah. Wow, that, that sounds that sounds Civil <laughs> yeah, War-y. That's right. Um, so you mentioned earlier your hospital was bombed. You, you were bombed. What happened that day? Can you sort of take yeah. me through that that day? It was May first, two thousand fourteen, and uh, <clears throat> yeah, the day started as normal. Got up, doing the rounds. I remember exactly the point I was on the female ward. I remember the staff member I was talking to. We were kind of joking around about something. Then we heard this rushing sound, like I mean, like I've never heard in my life. Just a loud rushing sound. It we just kind of froze. Then literally two seconds after we heard that loud rushing sound, we heard, boom! I mean, the loudest explosion ever heard. And the building shook. And all the dust uh, kind of fell down onto the... All this dust fell down onto the onto the floor of the hospital rep. 
And it sounded like the explosion was just outside. So we kind of dropped down to the ground and we heard the, the, it was a jet, a Sukhoi jet, Sukhoi 24 jet kind of disappeared in the distance. So a lot of people were yelling and screaming. And everybody starts running out the door. So I, I went out and uh, I kind of looked around and saying, you know, let me see where the, where the bomb is. So we hit up on a, on a hill uh, next to where we keep our TB and leprosy patients. So we're running up there. And it just as soon as any damage or any problems, I know it exploded just outside here, just outside the fence of the TB and leprosy village. And uh, just as we're up there, I was up there talking with the staff. We're running around, make sure the staff are, uh, patients are okay. We see the jet, and jet does a U-turn. <laughs> starts coming back. Uh. So they just finished digging a big pit for a latrine. They hadn't started using the latrine yet, but they took a big uh, pit for a latrine. So the plane starts coming back. So the staff say, come on, let's jump in this hole. This big, deep pit. We just jumped down this pit and are cowering down there. And we see the jet go overhead. And I can see the bottom of the jet. Uh, I mean, it was right overhead us. And I got identified as Sukhoi 24. Um, I mean, you can go on Wikipedia and it shows you the, the views of the jets mm-hmm. in different angles. And I, I knew that Sudan had just bought, mm-hmm. uh, I think it was um, 12 Sukhoi 24s from Belarus. And uh goes overhead and literally a second later, another loud boom. I mean, it just uh. shakes everything. Like, oh, my God. So we get up and they, it dropped a few more bombs <clears throat> just around. So I go up I go up to where I, I live. And I met our, our matron, Sister Angelina. She goes, they, they're they trying to kill you. So literally 20 yards from my house, my little place where I live, there was a big crater there. Yeah. So I came over and someone said they saw it. I didn't see it, but it, was, it sent a rocket out. And the roof, my roof was here. It just, just sailed over my roof and then exploded right nearby. They were targeting and, uh, you. Yeah, I think so. I, I think so. I mean, they knew, I'm sure they knew exactly where I lived. They're, I think there were spies around. I'll take somebody with a, with a satellite phone or something to kind of, Calling the exact GPS coordinates where the place is. So I, I destroyed the fence and some other things, but really, and the, the house was all, you know, the roof was all buckled and doors were blown off and everything else, but uh, no casualties, believe it or not. No casualties. Yeah. Simple and minor ones. And that was, uh, wasn't much. I mean, how do you deal with the fact that a government is trying to kill you? Yeah. I mean, you know, it was, it was, yeah, it was, it was frightening, obviously. And all you're doing is, is, you know, you're not a belligerent. Yeah, take care you know, of sick people. It's like, what yeah. the heck, man? What am I doing wrong? But I mean, I think for me, that kind of uh, strengthened my resolve to say, you know, if they want to do this and, and play this game, let me let me stick it out and keep helping the people here because this is really you know, what they're doing is is criminal. So let me not give in to their criminal behavior and take off because uh, that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to get us out of there. I said, let's let's stick it out, you know. And that was that was May first, and then May second, they come back with another airplane and the Antonov bomber, which is a Antonov, so this big. Cargo planes. They're cargo planes that yeah. they just like drop barrel bombs out exactly. the back of, right? So the next day we're here to hear the Antonov come overhead. I mean, we, we, it was normal. We heard the Antonov every day, but they were normally bombing somewhere else. So now it's kind of circling around overhead us. And we knew that we, we've been bombed before. So like the year, the summer before then, we've been bombed. And those bombs landed maybe a half a kilometer away from us. And it makes a very distinct sound when the, when the, when the bomb is falling through the air. It sounds like a jet engine, it's like a rushing noise. And once you hear that, it's the sound of actually the bomb falling through the air. And uh, if it drops nearby, you can hear that sound. Once you hear it, you know you have about 10 seconds to get some dive for cover. So we're sitting in the planes overhead, and we hear that sound like, oh, my God, it's bombing. So we went and we jumped into one of the foxholes. And boom, it j- just falls just just at the gate of the hospital, you know. Mm. And uh, I think at this point, I was, I, was on, I was on one of the wards. So I just got down on the floor of the ward. I figure if it bombs somewhere and blasts, at least I'm down low enough, I'll miss being hit by the shrapnel. Uh, 
So it bombs to get up. You usually have time because it, it drops and it has it drops, takes weeks and drop. Yes, I got to run outside. I remember one of our staff members, uh, one of our nurses, was was like in a panic. She's like running around screaming and just I say I just grabbed her and pulled her over to one of the foxholes and we jumped in. And we just got just got her down. And we just stayed there for a while. Uh, and that bomb, I think it dropped six bombs and eventually eventually left. Have, we have some minor casualties. No casual. Uh, no, no, minor, minor casualties. Minor. One guy had a big piece of shrapnel on his foot and mm-hmm. some of the minor ones, but nothing major. And they, they didn't destroy any structures. They got pretty close, but they didn't destroy any, any of the structures of the hospital. Uh, and then they, after that, they uh, all the almost all the patients took off. He said, no, they're targeting the hospital. Yeah. And that was two days in a row. The patients took off and there was a, a, a small hill nearby. A lot of the patients, especially the children and the parents, went up to that hill. They stayed up there on the hill. So the next day, we went up and we did the rounds there. We went, we found the patients there. So I started seeing, we started examining the patients there up on the hill. We did our, our ward rounds up there that day. And it took time. I mean, they didn't, then they didn't bomb for several days and, you know, a month. And so eventually, patients started filtering back and the staff, the staff disappeared for several days. They started coming back. Yeah, we went, on, went ahead with life and then things continued on. I mean, how do you sort of deal with the kind of personal trauma and like the psychological trauma that, you know, has to be associated with, with experiencing these bombings and, yeah. and, you know, just the knowledge that the government is trying to kill you? Right. That's, you know, it's, it's strange. I think a lot of this stuff, when you're, when you're in it, you don't realize it so much. And I think the adrenaline is, is, is going 24-7. You don't allow yourself to, to relax and, and think about it too much I, I i think the way this stuff works after some time after things are calm they're calm for a while now things start coming out mm-hmm. you just get kind of you get kind of twitchy you get real irritable about things um you know things that normally don't bother you really really irritate you and mm-hmm. you know it's you really start feeling that there's something not not right with you you know so I think for me personally, I can say, I think it's been a kind of delayed response. Mm-hmm. When this was going on, I was, you know, you, get, you just get really, you get really kind of jazzed up, mm-hmm. you know, like you're, you're playing a sport and like, you know, the game is on and you got you're just, you're just going 24 mm-hmm. seven. And a lot of the psychological stuff, uh, it does affect you less, but, uh, but some days, uh, yeah, I mean the, the deaths when, when, when people die or, uh, either a young child or a young soldier that you see that you maybe treated and they're initially getting better. Now they take a turn for the worse and they die. That, that takes a big toll. You know, that really is, uh, that really is painful. And, uh, those are very difficult to deal with. I, I think there's no, there's no secret to what to do. I think in the end, it, you know, the way I always saw it was I can either wallow in, in, I can either keep mourning and wallow in self pity and just, you know, just die of frustration. Uh, and stop taking care of people, or I can say, okay, you know, uh, get over it. There are other people that need your services. Uh, leave this one behind and try to help the next person. And that is really hard to do. That's really hard to do because you carry that person with you. Uh, you carry that psychological psychological trauma with you. And uh, it's tough. <clears throat> that part is really tough. And I mean, I think probably in the end, uh, my Christian faith is what the end sustains me because I just say, look, Tom, you're, you're not in charge of life and death. You know, it's just how it is. Stuff happens. And I can't, I don't know why. I mean, I can't explain why these people die. I can't explain why this is happening. Uh, but, you know, maybe that's not my role. Maybe my role is just just take care of the people as best you can and go ahead, you know. Um, maybe eventually I'll have an answer to why all this stuff happens. But, 
you know, I, God is there. The people there have faith and say, well, you know, let's just go ahead. You know, awesome. you know this is the hand we're dealt and let's just do what we can to help right. these people. It's probably like a lifetime of processing yeah. all this. Yeah. Um, so, so today the, the political situation, the, the conflict, the hot part of the conflict has, has subsided. It subsided. Our last, uh, last really major offensive was, well, about a year and a half ago, um, there's been no fighting for the past year. There's been a ceasefire. Both sides announced, we announced unilateral ceasefires. So they never agreed to a ceasefire. Mm-hmm. They've had a few, uh, well, they've had several, I don't know how many rounds of peace talks, 19 or 20, it all failed. Politically, there's been no change. Uh, the last defenses by the, by the Sudan government, they really encroached quite a bit onto Esplanade North territory. So they're about an hour away from us now. They're pretty close to where we are. And it's kind of a bit of a stalemate right now. There's not been any active fighting either way. Just before I left to come here to Armenia, uh, there was a lot of talk that the Sudan army is getting ready. They're building up forces in different places, getting ready to attack. And uh, <clears throat> they haven't yet. I haven't heard them in touch with, with everybody mm-hmm. there. Not, nothing's happened yet. <clears throat> but I think the way I see it, the situation is not resolved. And uh, I think we're so far from a political uh, settlement that the only thing left is go back to fighting. That well, uh, I'm not, politically, I mean, has or, or just for your, for your day-to-day operations on the ground, has the fact that the U.S. has eased and lifted sanctions on Sudan affected mm-hmm. your your work at all? Uh, I would say it's affected us in that it gives the Sudan government a, an element of um, uh, what's what I'm looking for a credibility that they don't really deserve. So it's helped them in the eyes of the, of the international community. So I think the the sympathy has shifted away from the from the Nuba and from the Esplanade North rebels. We're, we used to have, I think, sympathy from the U.S. and European states. Now we don't. So lifting of sanctions, this big amount of money the EU gave to Khartoum, the stop flow of migration, all these things give the Khartoum government uh, a degree of legitimacy that they don't really deserve. And that hurts our cause. Because uh, the cartoon government's the same. It's the same characters that are there. They're still doing the same things. Uh, they're pretending now to be, you know, peaceful. They're not attacking you because it doesn't help them uh, with their political aims. Uh, but their goals are still the same. And they're not going to, they're not going to offer the Nuba any type of, of freedom or equal rights. It's not going to happen. They're just biding their time now, playing nice, uh, looking good to the Western world uh, to get what they want, which is, uh, have sanctions lifted. They want to be off the state sponsor of terrorism, terrorism list. These other things that they're looking at doing. So uh, what's next for, for you personally? I mean, we're, we're in Armenia now and obviously you'll, you'll go back to, to work uh, mm-hmm. pretty soon. What, yeah. what, what's next for, for you, for, for your hospital? Right. So what I'm, what I'm looking at and uh, what we're looking at is we're saying, okay, this is our situation. Uh, we're still we're still in a state of war. It's not active fighting, but we're still very unstable. Thinking the fighting is probably going to resume again. Uh, we say, let's not concern ourselves with that so much. Let's try to go ahead, try to keep expanding our services. And that's what we've been doing. We've gone from a hospital. We've added six uh, outreach clinics. We're expanding our immunization, immunization program. Our patient education programs are expanding. We'd very much like to, if funding is available, uh, open up a few more clinics or just um, support clinics that are there that don't have any health workers, don't have any drugs, maybe even open another hospital somewhere. So we're, our eyes are on, okay, we know there's a conflict, we know there are problems. Let's focus on on going ahead as if this place were peaceful and we'll see what happens. Do you have like a fundraising apparatus? 
We have, uh, we do. Uh, we have the uh, we have the Catholic Medical Mission Board is behind us. Okay. Uh, so it's mission. not just you doing all the medicine and all the fundraising. Right. Yeah. We've got we've okay. got groups that are helping us. African Mission Healthcare Foundation is kind of our. They help us a lot with fundraising. And uh, I think I think probably uh, I was just talking with, with John Fielder, who's the head of that group. I'll probably have to go to the U.S. sometime in the next mm-hmm. year or so and do like a fundraising tour, try to up this. We have we do have some organizations that are behind us that are helping us. If people listening want to help, like what what's the best way they can do that? Right. So I would direct them towards the African Mission Healthcare Foundation. Okay. And um, I'll post the, I'll post the link to this. Yeah, on the they're yeah. just www.mhf.us. Okay. Yeah. And they've got a portal there for donating to our hospital. Uh, well, Tom, good luck. Thank yeah. you. Thank you so much for your time and, yeah. and for your stories and, and for your work. You bet, Mark. Thank you. Yeah, Here, thanks. I'll, I'll shake your hands. Yeah. Yeah. I usually don't much. get to shake hands with the, the guests. That's, That's right. A, <laughs> this is usually done all remotely. Right. Um, thank you. Yeah. yeah you're welcome, Mark. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Tom. Um, one quick thing. So at the beginning of our conversation, we kind of joked about how he was on a postage stamp. I am trying to get my hands on those postage stamps, and I would love to send one to you as a sort of souvenir. So if you want a Tom Katana Armenian postage stamp, uh, send me an email using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com, and I'll, I'll see what I can do about getting you one. Also, maybe one disclosure, uh, the Aurora Humanitarian Initiative, people uh, bought my plane ticket and hotel room out in, in Armenia where I collected this interview and a few others. And they're also uh, going to be a sponsor of the show, an advertiser uh, in July. And uh, I was very glad and grateful to be able to go and, and collect these interviews and, and glad to have them on as a sponsor. It's, it looks like a great organization. Uh, and I've met some great people out there, including Samantha Power, who was a uh, part of, of this whole weekend of, of events and, and celebration. I had a good conversation with her and I actually recorded a, a bit of that conversation. It was like a small kind of press round table and posted that recording as a bonus episode for premium subscribers. So if you want to listen to uh, me and a few other journalists, talk to Samantha Power on the record about some interesting issues, uh, including democratic backsliding and multilateralism. And uh, John Prendergast was there as well. I suspect you might know who he is. He's the founder of the Enough Project. And he was uh, part of that little press roundtable and answered questions uh, about sort of being perceived as a white savior. It was a good and interesting conversation. I recorded it and packaged it up for you as a bonus episode. And I do hope to have Ambassador Power on the show later in the fall when her book comes out, which I'm really excited for. All right, we'll see you next time. Bye.